Hello and welcome to today's Pina Wisdom Story, where we get to listen in on the wisdom that can only be earned by professional permaculturists with 20 plus years of experience working within the permaculture framework. Pina Wisdom Stories gives us all a chance to hear from Pina. What? There we go. Hello. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I lost you for a minute, but yep, I'm here. All right, let me finish this little intro here. Pina Wisdom Stories gives us all a chance to hear from Pina diplomates, board members, and other pioneers from the early days of permaculture's development. We seek to make the connection between the elders in our field of study and permaculture enthusiasts everywhere on earth. I'm Jesse, and I'll be hosting today's conversation, which should last about 90 minutes. If that works for you, Daryl, let me know if you need to leave earlier. And please leave comments in the live chat for today's guest, as interaction always makes every conversation better, in my opinion. And today we are honored to speak with and feature Daryl Frey. Daryl has been a permaculture consultant and teacher since 1987. He earned a BA in Sustainable Community Development from Prescott College and holds diplomas of permaculture site design and permaculture education from the Permaculture Institute of North America. He is a lifelong learner with a strong background in horticulture, natural sciences, regenerative systems, and permaculture design. He has extensive practical experience in small business management, homesteading, construction, and project management. Daryl's permaculture journey began after reading an interview of Bill Mollison in Mother Earth News Magazine, issue number 63, in November of 1980, and subsequently reading Permaculture 1 and Permaculture 2. In 1982, Daryl attended a weekend permaculture workshop at Stonyfield Farm in New Hampshire, where he asked Bill Mollison how how to bring permaculture to Western Pennsylvania. Bill encouraged Daryl to pursue his ideas to develop what became Three Sisters Farm and Bioshelter. After six years of intensive self-guided study of permaculture, Daryl completed a permaculture design certificate course in 1986. And Daryl, welcome. Great to have you here. Great. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Anything you want to add or that I got wrong on the on the short bio there? Oh, no. That was good. Um, I will add that Bill Mollison eventually came to visit, but we can talk about that at some point. So, yeah, that sounds good. We'll get to that. And where are you coming from? I'm I'm in Michigan now. Where are you currently at? I'm been in the Pittsburgh area for a while. I'm in a suburb of Pittsburgh tonight. All right, friend's house. Yep. Cool. And so, you know, I'm always curious, especially somebody who's been doing the the good work and knew about permaculture, you know, way before I did and has been working in the field of permaculture for quite some time. What sort of got you into being a, a were you a nature kid? Did you grow up in nature? What were your early formative experiences that sort of eventually led you to permaculture? Well, I definitely was a grew up in nature. I mean, I grew up in a small town north central pennsylvania along the susquehanna river till i was 11 years old and then when i was 11 we moved to a, a small town in the middle of the allegheny national forest till i was 17. then we moved to another town oil city pennsylvania which was a little larger but still a lot of nature you know you walk half a mile and you're in the woods so um I grew up along big rivers and big forests and spent a lot of time in an old growth forest in the Allegheny National Forest. But my father grew up on a family homestead that actually had been in the family since the late 1700s and um, in northern, north central Pennsylvania. So 
wow. spent a lot of time hiking and fishing and hunting. You know, my father had a story that he got sent home from school for eating ramps on the way to school. So <laughs> wild onions, wild leeks, whatever you call them. So was he just too smelly for all the other kids in yeah, the class? Yeah, the teacher thought he was smelling up the classroom. Yes. So, um, so I come come by it naturally. Yeah. Yeah. My mother's brother was my bro- mother's ahead. brother had a big garden every year all his life and you know my my family cousins and children all grow the garlic that Uncle Marlin kept going for since 1960s so wow we um just in our blood I guess yeah it sounds um, like it and what and you kind of sent me a bio earlier um but we didn't get to share it with the audience so what were you up to before that first, like reading that first Bill Mollison article in Mother Earth magazine, it, were you already farming? What had your life been up to that point? Well, when I was 18, I graduated high school and my parents were getting ready to move to Pittsburgh. And I had recently met um, a group of friends that worked at a state institution for developmentally disabled people and some of them, one of them introduced me to the farm book, Hey Beatnik, um, about the farm in Tennessee. And her and some other friends had a vision of, you know, buying land together or being somehow connected to the farm. And I just, to be honest, I didn't want to live in cities anymore. I was, um, I mean, I didn't drink alcohol, but I had my name in the paper three times, including my 18th birthday for underage drinking, just being, you know, in a car with friends or I'm like, I don't want to live in towns or cities. The neighbors are, neighbors are you know, nosy and, you know, please know your names. I wasn't doing anything to get in any real trouble, but still, I just wanted to be in the country. And so I spent, my family moved to Pittsburgh. I spent the winter, applied for the job at the state, spent the winter living with friends eight to 10 of us in this house through the winter various times. And then half of us got a house in the country. Um, eventually I got a job, my job at the state institution. And I moved on to a, an old farmhouse. A friend told me there was a empty farmhouse that if I wanted to try to rehabilitate it, I could probably get it cheap. So for five years, I paid $50 a month rent and put in, $300 a year worth of repairs in the house. And, and I was um, surrounded by homesteaders. You know, my good friends, Bob and Alan Benick are having their 50th wedding anniversary party in a couple weeks. And um, them and another friend, Dave Davis, um, were raising goats and chickens and organic gardening and making cider. And so this friend, Dave Davis, took me under his wing and He's like, oh, we got to get you a chainsaw. You got to buy this chainsaw. We're going to cut firewood. And since I lived on the 163 acres of forest, um, we had a lot of firewood. So my neighbors would come over. Bob Benning one year brought his horse over. We cut up logs down, you know, deadfall trees. Or The landlord did kind of a sustainable harvest. So Bob would bring his horse over to drag the logs out, and we'd cut up our firewood. But, you know, just from getting to know my neighbors and hanging out in the neighborhood. I was learning a lot of homesteading skills. Eventually my ex-wife Linda joined me there and um, 
And so we were, you know, I moved in in 1978. And by 1980, we were pretty well established with gardens and chickens and goats. And, and I read the Bill Mollison interview. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to be a permaculture designer. So um, I worked afternoon shift at this state institution. And so I was able to get a lot of work done in the morning and then go in and have the uh, earn my money in the evening. So worked yeah. Out good. yeah, and you already had a lot of those skills, like the back to the land style skills. So that, that works out good, too. Yeah, I'm wondering... No, Back to the job was the the people we took care of um, usually went to bed at 9.30, so you had an hour or two at the end of the day to you could read or whatever you wanted to study to um, and uh, so anyway. Yeah. I, do you have a copy of digital copy of that article, that Mother Earth news article? I think it is online. Okay. I don't have one handy but <laughs> that's all right it's, i'm just sitting here thinking i don't know I've, i i kind of went hard on bill molson when i discovered him i was like i gotta read everything this guy's ever written yeah. um, i don't know if i've read that one i probably did some point but i'd like to dig it back up and, and read it again for myself so. yeah i have found it online mother earth news magazine also has all their back issues on cds okay so it's all digitized but yeah yeah that's um, nice probably interview so yeah, he was talking about the need to take our understanding of environmental science and apply it, you know, as a design system. Right. And, then, and he was, by then, he was starting to teach permaculture, and was, um, you know, just talking about needing to create a international network of permaculture designers and so on. But yeah. And then not too many years later, you actually ended up having him come to your farm, which we'll get to, I, I gather, in the, in the slides. Um, you also, I didn't add to your bio. I didn't see it in there. Um, you, you're an author of a couple books. Can you share the name of those books with us, please? Bioshelter Market Garden, a Permaculture Farm. <laughs> um, yes. And then I co-authored the Food Forest Handbook with a woman, Michelle Zolba. Okay. Um, so... Bioshelter Market Garden and the Food Forest Handbook, and they're both with New Society Publishing. Okay, and that that really is uh, where I wanted to spend the most time with you today. And I know you have a slideshow, so let me know when you're ready to jump into it. But I'm curious about I I'm a market gardener myself, and just recently in the past five years or seven years or so, um, but I didn't know the word bioshelter until your book. I had to kind of look it up and be like, what's bioshelter mean? So. Maybe the slides is the best place to discuss that, or maybe you could just tell us, like, first of all, how how is your market gardening different as a permaculturist, and then also what's the whole bio shelter um, word and yeah, sort of focus. Well, we certainly can start with discussing it and then show pictures, but um, you know, I don't know if people understand younger folks the pre-internet days of <laughs> of. Uh, learning stuff but <laughs> yeah we had organic gardening magazine mother Earth news magazine um you'd find articles and you know get references and have to track down addresses and organizations but somewhere in there i got a free copy of this magazine called new roots and it had an article about the new alchemy institute and 
1976 New Alchemy Institute, where they were founded in the mid-70s um, near Cape Cod in Massachusetts. John Todd of Living Machine fame and oh, okay. Nancy and Nancy Jack Todd and John Todd and Earl Barnhart and Bill McClerney, I think, was an aquaculturist. But mm-hmm. you know, they were young scientists and they got funding to do kind of what, you know, what later became sustainability research or regenerative. But so in 1976, they built a large solar greenhouse called the Ark on Cape Cod and they established the New Alchemy Institute. They built plastic domes and organic gardens and herb gardens. And so yeah, I read about them in a couple of different magazines, this New Roots magazine that didn't last very long. But And uh, so I was, was like, yeah, well, you know, when I was in elementary school, I had a, quite a collection of little cactuses because I liked going into this greenhouse and I always felt like I needed to spend a quarter while I was there. So I had a dozen or more cactuses for a while, but, um, but I just really liked greenhouses. And so I was like, yeah, I want a bio shelter someday. <laughs> but uh, so the new Alchemy Institute, there's also a lot of stuff online about them. And the, the ARC was, as far as I know, Earl Barnhart and his partner, wife, Hilda Mangay, Hildy Menge still live there. They turned it into a house. They refurbished it a couple of different times. So um, it's really beautiful bio shelter. Um, I think does doesn't have backup heat. It's just built into a hillside kind of. And mm-hmm. um, so that's where I learned about bio shelters. And then when we were starting really thinking hard about our farm, we also had read about the Solviva bioshelter on Martha's Vineyard Island that a woman, Anna Edie, had started. And so, you know, as I was planning my market garden, I was really inspired by the work of the New Alchemy Institute and the work of Anna Edie. Um, I guess we got 90 minutes, so stop me if I'm rambling. <laughs> oh, no, no, I love it. Take your time. So... <clears throat> You know, I wanted to become a permaculture designer. I started, I didn't, I had a young family. My son was born in 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, I have three children, but my oldest son. And I had a full-time job with not a lot of seniority. So I couldn't travel to somewhere to take a three-week permaculture course. Back then they were 120-hour courses. Wow. Um, so I just started reading all the references that I could find to the to the permaculture one and permaculture two like i even found a book climate near the ground by rudolf geiger an environmental center and um and so i read you know the owner build homestead and um mulch gardening book by whatever her name is and just um you know the tree crops found them in libraries or bought them but um so i spent six years studying permaculture at some point, I heard of, you know, started into learning about bioregionalism. So I co-hosted a bioregional conference with some friends. And Seventy people showed up, and it was kind of a success. But we didn't follow it up a whole lot. But but at the bioregional conference, I heard about this Dr. McCoskey at Slippery Rock University that wanted to do a sustainability center. So I 
tracked him down one night the evening, caught him in his office and um, gave him my permaculture books and said, if he would host the permaculture course, I would take it. And uh, so in 1986, Dan Hemingway, a permaculture teacher, came to do the course with us and teach the course. And there was only like six or seven students in the class, but um, Mm -hmm. 20 hours of almost pure lecture. And while we were taking the class, we had a property on the university that we could look at to do like design practicums. And Uh so I got involved with the McCoskey Center, what became the McCoskey Center at Slippery Rock a bit. And um, I started going to their meetings. And so I was getting requests for proposals in the mail for grant funding from the Pennsylvania Energy Office. And in the late December of 1987, I got this paperwork, you know, request for proposals from the Pennsylvania Energy Office for energy and agriculture. Mm. And um, I'm like, this is my bio shelter. This is my farm. Um, Perfect. (laughs) My wife at the time, Linda and I had already started building our house on our 10 acres of property. And a friend had said we could use his five acres for our permaculture market garden. Mm. So we had already started planting some things over there, pea shrubs and starting uh, Korean pine nuts from seed and some rose hips and um, filberts and cross between filberts and hazelnuts we started from seed. So, so then, um, you know, it's kind of how I got the funding. the, The funding came from, the Carter administration had sued the major oil companies for overcharging everybody in the 70s during the energy crisis. <laughs> and so they had you know, lots of money to distribute to the 50 states. So Pennsylvania set up these energy office um, with regional offices to um, disseminate information on conservation and alternative energy and there was a whole directory Pennsylvania did on wind power and solar power and other you know, geothermal resources in Pennsylvania with maps and diagrams and information. And I knew architects that were teaching about solar greenhouses and solar house design. So, you know, there was this whole network happening in Western Pennsylvania. And, um, so we tapped into that and then the funding from the oil overcharge and build our bio shelter on our, five acre field. Um, you know, one thing I want to say is, you know, that permaculture is really about relationships, about networks, you know, to me, it's, you know, we're, you know, I'm telling you my story and we're talking about me, my journey in permaculture, but all along the way, there was other people involved. You know, my wife, Linda, we had partners when we started the farm with Don Shiner and Frank Hildall and my neighbor, Jack Smith. Jack Smith, Smith, you know, we're all part of helping make it happen. Yeah. Eventually, they various people went on their ways. And Jack's still the neighbor there, but <clears throat> he just wanted to see it happen. He's like, yeah, you can do this on my land. <laughs> yeah. He sold us the land, but. Yeah, no, you're totally right. And and that's part of the reason I like talking about the story aspect, because it ties in so many different people who were supporters and uh, sort of unsung heroes along the way. So thank you for mentioning that. 
Um, so why don't we jump into a slideshow so we can start to get a visual of what your market garden looked like. Um, and the bio shelter looked like maybe in the early days and then where you're at now. I know you've transitioned out of that particular setup, but you're going into a, a, an interesting setup as well with food forests, I believe. So we can get to that eventually. So let's see if I can figure out this screen share thing again. Yeah. <laughs> Technology. Where was that? Should be beneath your video, but I don't know what you have to select the. Um, tab i think oh here we go screen share yeah, yeah. select the tab to share uh maybe if i go down here and click on it here i'll start with 40 years of permaculture oh yeah perfect i don't know is it coming up yet no i don't see it yet i think you have to did you share the um when you hit screen share it says share the whole screen or share a tab and then you have to select the tab the entire screen okay here we go 40 years of permaculture my, com my computer is not 40 years old but almost i i don't see it yet oh there it is something popped up whatever that was beginning. worked Oh, wait, cancel. Uh, Let's say 30 years of permaculture at Three Sisters Farm. Yes, it does. It looks great. Okay. This is our original logo. Of course, Three Sisters is corn, beans, and squash. Um, the, in our area, it was the Iroquois Indians or the Hane Dosane. Um, I saw in the Bioneers Conference next, next March, um, Warren... I can't remember his name, but there was an Iroquois speaker on the list. But um, when we chose that name, there was several women in our collective, and they liked that that concept. But um, it was also we thought we were honoring the native agriculture of our region. Companion plants are basis for a sustainable diet, and yeah. Um, so, and this. Uh, this is the bio shelter as we build it. Um, pond, five acre field with the tree line. And between myself under the solar panel and the bio shelter, there's a, one of our 10,000 square foot um, garden beds. Wow. So. Um, uh, did you dig the pond or was the pond there? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Again, my neighbor, Jack Schmidt, was a partner. And so he, he was a fisherman. So he had the pond built. We brought the natural resource conservation service in and they designed it. And then we paid for it. We didn't quite make it deep enough, but mm. um, someday I might make it deeper, but it was a great source of irrigation when we were gardening. Now, last year, some beavers moved in and I had to protect trees with wire because the beaver were there in the springtime. Yeah. Nice. Nice to have, but a little dangerous for trees. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, some aspen trees blew in from a neighbor's tree and seeds come in and it grew up on the edge of the pond nicely. So yeah, um, a lot of the most interesting plants come on their own, like this outer, it's a nitrogen-fixing wetland plant. Um, there's some viburnums that come up on their own from the, yeah. anyway. Um, so 
eventually when we actually bought the five acre land from our neighbor, Jack, we wrote into the deed that he has the lifetime rights to fishing there. <laughs> so that's nice. <laughs> Um, in permaculture design, we do bubble drawings first, one of the first things, you know, to study a site. So this was our site. Um, this is an aerial map from probably the 1940s or 60s um, aerial photo. And so we had a nice level site with south exposure to build a bio shelter. We had a place to do a pond. We had different garden sites. So we. Um, that looks so, great. So we had um, kind of a general idea how we were going to develop the place. The tree lines, a nice windbreak. Mm -hmm. um, one of my sons is an environmental scientist, so he can do two-foot elevation maps for me when I need them. That's convenient. <laughs> so you know, at the bottom of this picture is the neighbor Jack's house, and he has four or five rental cabins and a cabin in the woods. And so we had farm interns or farm workers. Um, um, they could often rent from him for a reasonable price. And we put a mobile home up here for to live in, even though we had a house five miles away and the bio shelter and lots of gardens. So um, when with your gardening, were you doing um, tractor style or just hand or a hybrid or how were you managing them? Um, Mostly rototiller. I did have a tractor for a few years, mostly to turn compost. The, the tractor was, was, a, was a John Deere 910, but it was just a little too big for this size of garden beds. But yeah, when Linda and I were first starting planting some nursery trees here, I stood there looking at this field wondering, can you mark a garden on this scale with a rototiller? I didn't, you know, didn't really know anybody that had, so... That was, um, um, it was an adventure, <laughs> but yeah, had um, to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Jack donated his rototiller. He had Troy, Troy built it. Yeah. We built a bio shelter. And then the first year we made our South garden. And then the next year or two we had an intern and we, um, did our East garden and we expanded that in the Southeast garden. And then Eventually we did our pond garden and then the West gardens kind of an orchard area, but some years we had crops there. We had gardens all over the place really, but just as the farm, you know, our sales went from $2,000 to 8,000 to 15 to 22 to, you know, by five or six years, we were up to 40,000 in produce sales. And yeah, we kind of leveled off there because we just didn't, want to have a whole lot of extra hired help and um it's a family farm so we had other jobs but that you know when i say forty thousand today's prices that would be eighty thousand dollars in sales so, yeah yeah very good and especially you say you had other jobs during that as well well i worked for 18 years as a direct care aide um, for the commonwealth of pennsylvania but for a while, um, Linda retired from the state to run the farm. And then eventually I retired to work at the farm. And then she went back at some point um, to work there, but part-time, but um, then full-time. So um, we generally always had another job. I mean, almost every farmer I know, all the organic farmers, they they have 
someone in the family has a job with healthcare. So. Yeah. <laughs> the struggle. Um, yeah. But um, I've had, uh, in my own market garden, I've had other jobs pretty much consistently throughout as well. So I can echo yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, we saw where we could do it, but then again, it was, to me, the farm was always a, a self-funded permaculture research project. And, you know, I'd rather be your friend than your boss in the end. So um, we weren't out, you know, the, as many people have said on this podcast, you're not going to get rich from permaculture. I mean, on your various podcasts. So. Yeah, not in the financial maybe, but in all the other forms of capital, you got a lot of experiential capital, a lot of like direct natural capital. So yeah, I, wrote an article, I wrote an article for the permaculture activist one time called What Profits? About what profits from our farm being there. Yeah. Because people would say, this is all great, but what's your profit? And I'm like, well, my kids profit from knowing, meeting all these cool people that come to visit and yeah. work here. And, um, you know, the biodiversity, I mean, you know, biodiversity profits and the earth profits and friends and neighbors. And we eat good food. My, um, I mean, yeah. my goal starting out um, were to show that you could grow food year round in Western Pennsylvania in a diverse bio shelter without the use of fossil fuels mm, mm-hmm. and that you could increase biodiversity while you were developing you know an enterprise mm. and so my joke is after 25 years i was successful so i could retire <laughs> congrats <laughs> and this year i made you know we have 60 blueberry plants i made 46 gallons of cider um Lots of summer apples and summer pears and raspberries. So there's a, you know, there's a lot of fruit. We're just not market gardening right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's still profiting, but just maybe not in that direct way. Yeah. Um, So some three sisters pictures. Beautiful. And when we were market gardening, um, this really isn't in focus that well, but um, another permaculture teacher, Susanna Lean, gave us this lovely cloth. Um, and she used to come help sessions in our class. But so we grew fruits and we grew um, lots of herbs. We did a lot of herbal bouquets. Our main crop was a salad mix. Mm. We called it salad of the season. And so for 25 years, for 40 weeks of the year, every Wednesday night, Linda or myself were mixing up um, 25 to 50 pounds of salad mix which we sold for 12 to $16 a pound. And at the time, you know, spring mix was gone for three or $4 a pound. So it was, wow. And it was in demand. We could have sold a lot more. Wow. I had a chef that wanted me to send it to the white house. And then he was in Chicago and he wanted me to ship it there. And <laughs> we were just, you know, we, in the springtime, we put in violet leaves and watercress and dandelions and, Later in the summer, it had like amaranth and purslane and oxide daisy and um, yeah, just lots of ingredients. But um, with all those ingredients, would you plant them as part of your market garden, or are those just sort of wild foraged goodies because um, of the time of year? We'll get into that into the slideshow, but okay. Like here, we did a lot of head lettuce, yeah, and some bronze fennel, but um, this is a little too much lettuce. We usually didn't plant so much in one space but when we plant the lettuce 
things like chickweed would come up around it. This is radicchio. Right. And so we'd get one or two cuts of the um, chickweed, and then we'd harvest the radicchio, and then we'd get another cutting or two of chickweed, and then we that would be our green manure. Yeah. So and there's yellow dock, which we put in the salad. Um, so, yeah, we, we didn't really plant weed seeds. We just had lots of them. Yep. And, uh, and of course, you know, the biodiversity was a big part. We, if I let my farm right now that the farms fallow, all the fields have um, grown up in goldenrod. Mm -hmm. um, we get a lot of queen ants lace if we, you know, first and um, red clover and queen ants lace comes up and then the second or third year, the clover just regrows. I mean, the pardon me, the goldenrod. And the goldenrod is allelopathic, so it suppresses other things from germinating. So it'll keep those fields free of trees and invasives for decades, really. Wow. So, and I think it builds up a lot of carbon as the you know the stalks fall down every winter. So, mm -hmm. um, so I like having the goldenrod. So all our gardens were surrounded by, um, you know. A lot of native or naturalized biodiversity. Um, and um, then we get to the bioshelter. Yeah. And uh, wow. Then we're gone for diversity. This was probably in the springtime. So we have lots of cuttings. We sold plants um, at the May market and locally. So a lot of edible flowers, nasturtiums. We'd have. Um, sun gold tomatoes did really well in there, so they hang down from the there was second floor planters and just every available space. We had flowers, cut flowers, um, and uh, herbs and seedlings and whatever was going on. Um, just you know, I tell people when they're designing greenhouses and grow grow light spaces that. It's all about the square footage. You know, you design for square footage of production. And um, so, I mean, we could do a whole talk just on bioshelter design, but. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that, whole, that might be worth doing it at some point, but it, just as a very basic. So the the idea of the bioshelter is it remains growable in terms of temperature all year round due to the design of it. Is that the general idea? Yeah, it was frost free for the whole time. Now, actually, I'm working on reglazing it. The, the acrylic glazing panels have a 20 year lifespan and they've been up for 30 some 40 years. So, okay. um, so there's some holes in it. So. We put greenhouse plastic on it for a while and it ripped and blew off in a storm. So I'm, um, my granddaughter is actually going there tomorrow to finish some preparation. We're going to get a new sheet of plastic on it before the big winter hits here soon, I hope. But yeah. Um, and um, now is that to a, a food forest nursery? But yeah. That's your next step, right? Um, now, yeah. with the with the design of the bio shelter, are you using those earth tubes, or you know, I, I think they've had other names, but where you bury pipe at a certain depth, is that how you're getting the heat exchange to be so um, consistent? Yeah, I think there's some slides here that'll show, but okay, um, it's mostly solar. Okay, must um, have had a little solar pump for irrigation. Um, oh, so that. 
just a real quick question on irrigation. Is that your only form of irrigation, a solar pump, or did you have um, like no. a well? Yeah, there's okay. a well. Okay. Well, we would use the pond water when we're planting seedlings. And if it was in two weeks of harvest, we'd use spring or the well water. Oh, I just didn't smart. want to spray. We did overhead irrigation and I didn't want to spray pond water on crops close to harvest. So, ah, yeah. All our pipes, we had pipes going, we have pipes buried just like one inch line, but I can reverse the flow so it can pump from the pond to you know, all over the place, or I can pump from the well all over the place. So. Mm -hmm. um, um, but yeah, the whole. The BioShelter is passive solar and has backup wood heat. And it also has compost chambers and there was 50 chickens in the chicken coop. Um, so we were biothermal energy, wood heat and solar heat. Smart. And somewhere in here, we'll show some diagrams of the heat flow. Okay. This is kind of just a general overview. Um, I talked about the house on 10 acres. Um, this is some of Linda's gardens. Beautiful. Lupine. We did some, yeah, she's really into the fox glove. Fox glove, um, yeah. And this on the, on the left is um, in my spiral garden, our little food forest. But, oh, cool. Um, so we did some cordwood, cordwood construction, clay straw. We were trying a little bit of everything in this house. Yep. Um, and then the pond important for biodiversity. My three kids and a friend there <laughs> in the boat. So human human biodiversity in this case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um beautiful. I might need to I'm gonna go through these pretty quick, but again, the point of the farm was to get a lot of biodiversity. So this is a tree frog and a spring peeper. Um, lots of snakes, lots of spiders. Um, lots of birds. I kept keep track, and in the BioShelter book, I put a list of all the critters I've ever seen there. Oh, um, cool. You know, we have lots of tansy growing around. It's really good habitat for a lot of beneficial insects. And um, purple flowering oregano, we grew a lot of that for surfed fly habitat. Um, mm. For some reason, the surfed flies just really love that. Mm. And uh, lace wings just were naturally occurring there there's a brown lace wing and a green lace wing so we'd have them both and the chicken coop um the chickens lived inside the bio shelter uh, like a 175 square foot room that was vapor buried off from the rest of the building but we could pull the heat through and blow it under the growing beds oh cool the, heat, the air from the from the chicken coop yep and uh we when we would do cutting trays on our second floor we and other things we had windows that we'd just open up and dump the stuff out the window to feed the chickens outside and then every once every year i'd rent a skid loader when i had a tractor i'd open up the fence and scoop out all the stuff and compost it and any runoff was collected by the comfrey or in the swale so kind of laid out the chicken yard to um you know, collect the fertility and um, any runoff was fertilized other plants, and then we throw the comfrey back to the chickens. So, um, that sounds like a permaculture system to me. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then any if a heavy rain comes, it washed down and fertilized my mulberry trees. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. <laughs> lots of compost. We kept our dump truck at a local fairgrounds for 20-some years. And they would they fill it up, and every week I'd go and bring dump the, the, the um, bedding from the stables. But oh. at some point, they hired somebody with a 30-cubic-yard dumpster, and then he would bring it out and dump it at our farm, so I didn't need to leave my truck there anymore. Wow. Um, I used to be young. Just as I (laughs) finished compost. So composting. These are compost chambers built into the back of the bioshelter. And and we learned this from the new Alchemy Institute. When we got our grant, we, Linda and me and our three kids, Linda and I and our three kids went to the new Alchemy Institute in March um, did some final revisions and broke ground in April. So it was all moving pretty fast. We got our grant in January. We broke ground in April, but um, we thought we wanted to add composting chambers and we built these in. Um, after we got our $75,000 grant, we increased our costs by $25,000, and, um, but the bank was happy to loan us money. So, <laughs> so you in the composting greenhouse, you put a cubic yard, a truckload of um, manure and bedding in the compost chambers. Mm. And in one month, that'll put out about a million BTUs of heat plus carbon dioxide and ammonia and a lot of right. water vapor. Right. Whoops. Oh, there's Bill Mollison oh. and Scott Pittman visiting the farm. Nice. <laughs> a young Scott Pittman. I've not seen him that young before. <laughs> yeah. The haircut. Yeah. My neighbor, Jack. I'm sorry, this is slideshows jumping around. Oh, it's all good. We served Bill venison that day um, and wild edible salad. Did did he enjoy it? Oh, yeah. He called it Pennsylvania kangaroo. (laughs) That's great. Is this around the time that Bill was... um... When was this? 86 or something? No, this was 1989, I think. Okay. He was lecturing about economics um, and he came to Slippery Rock University for like a couple seminars and he was talking about how permaculture should be accessing capital um, to do good works. Yeah. And my brother's been done a lot of work in Washington, D.C., one of my brothers and he was working as a legislative aide in Congress at the time, and Bill, some senator or congresswoman set up for Bill Mollison to speak to legislators and legislative aides, and um, he went in there, apparently had a few drinks, and he basically told off the U.S. government, and <laughs> Scott's like, I went in there expecting him to talk about your farm and what was going on at Slippery Rock, and instead he's telling us that we're, anyway. Yeah, I guess he probably didn't win any friends over on that little conversation, huh? <laughs> yeah, and I think a permaculturist, uh, I shouldn't quote people, I won't say her name, but a permaculturist that helped organize it, I've heard wasn't real happy with that, but um, yeah, I think he might have been right. But Well, but, yeah, he, he was a prickly character, so I, that doesn't st- strike me as too odd coming yeah. from him. <laughs> yes, he had his... Anyway, um, I spoke about the new Alchemy Bio Shelter. So this oh. is what it looks like 
kind okay. of like 15 years ago. And I assume now solar panels and um, their bio shelter doesn't have backup heat. It's all earth shelter doesn't freeze. Whereas, um, whereas mine needed wood heat, um, similar climate, but just the way they had like less volume of air inside for ground space and um, mm-hmm. something like that, maybe better just insulated design. But ours is on the, on the left on the screen, had a couple low tunnels or you know, poly things. And all our garden beds were, are um, on contour with uh, pathways. We use a lot of mulch. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, you know, we, we tried mostly mulch gardening and we just get too many voles and slugs. And so we ended up with like rototilling every other year, rotating our beds so that it would rotate it, plant things like the lettuce and stuff that didn't need mulch. And then the next year we could use a U-bar, a light surface tilling, and then plant mulch crops. So we had, you know, a lot of different rotations based on minimizing the tillage. But um, mm-hmm. I tell yeah. people that most of the crops that we grow as vegetables do better in disturbed soil and all the wild edibles like disturbed soil. So, yeah, um, you know, you try to keep it fertile and minimize it, but on scale, different scales, you have different techniques. So. Well, um, and, and did you spend a, a fair amount of time like doing soil tests and assuring that, you know, like your soil organic matter was decent and that sort of thing, or did you let the plants sort of tell you? Well, both. I mean, with um, being certified organic, you have to do oh, right. annual soil test and water test and, um, and we use a really rich potting mix with green sand, rock phosphate, um, mm. rock lime, um, kelp. And so as when we do our transplants, every time we were mineralizing the soil. Yes. And you yeah. can really see those results in the soil test. The, you know, the, the further out gardens, the newer gardens, ones we didn't use every year intensively with transplants had less minerals and the bio shutter was getting pretty high levels of potassium. So yeah, um, you have to be careful with the putting mix, but. Um, and then one last question on the, you may have already said, but the pathways, did you manage those with wood chips mostly? Um, not in this garden. We, what we did actually, we used a hiller attachment on the rototiller to push the soil up under the beds. Ah, okay. And, kept them all on contour, but, um, in our perennial garden beds, we would use sawdust and wood chips on the pathways. And I mean, where I live, there's so many sawmills around. It would just, I drive three miles away and I'd get a truckload of, um, sawdust or truckload of bark mulch. Um, yeah. So it was accessible. Sometimes it was free if you wanted to load it up yourself. Yep. Um, the bark mulch we'd have to pay for, but the sawdust you could get for free. I mean, one of the things that inspired me to be a market gardener was seeing all the wasted manures and bales of hay in people's fields. I'm like, people could turn that into food. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So the bioshotter is an integrated system. Mm. It, it includes the greenhouse space, cold frames, storage, on the north side that buffers the main building from the weather, a packing kitchen, a 
like an office library. It wasn't so much an office, but it was where we kept our records from the farm. And, and when the organic inspector would come, we'd spend a lot of time in there looking at our sales records and our planting records and compost chambers and the chicken coop. So the chicken coop was, you know, a hundred feet away from the packing kitchen. Mm. Um, they're both in the same building. And, um, so as a new farm, these are all things you might want to have in your building. And we were able to put them all in one structure. Yeah. Um, And then uh, the second floor, we used these food grade barrels. I think they originally had juice or syrup in them. Um, you know, paid $6 at the time for a plastic barrel, cut it in half, drill some holes in it. And then I built two by four um, support with old, got metal from the, from the newspaper to use for flashing and would water these plants and any excess water would go into the, a bucket on the floor, which I would use to water or other things. But, um, so we had the whole second, we had 90 of these barrels inside there. And oh, we wow. did a lot of cutting greens and bread trays and plastic trays on the second floor. And then we had these outside frames. We had different renditions of these things to harden off our seedlings to go in the outside gardens. And the herb, spiral herb garden became a food forest eventually. <laughs> um, that's the original version of the New Alchemy Institute Arc. Oh, okay. And then this is how Anna Edie did her bioshelter with... Mm. Um, Martha Vineyard with wood wood frame beds on the inside. Mm. Um, her building lasted about 20 years or so, but then started to decay and eventually they tore it down. I'm currently working with a bio shelter in Pittsburgh. It's a Garfield community farm, an urban farm, and their bio shelter is like 32 feet by 24, but we're currently replacing the inside wooden beds um, just like this, they, you know, this like place is probably 12 years old. And so we're taking off all the, out the wood frame beds and replacing them. But I built ours with concrete blocks. And what do you, do you have a, would you say one is outperforming the other in your opinion? Oh, um, yeah, it was a lot more labor, you know, expensive to build it with concrete, but Certainly, they've been there 40 years now. I think, or what year is this? <laughs> 1988 to 20, whatever. Um, yeah, so yeah, the, almost the beds are holding up well. Yeah. Um, so we took Anna Edie's design, but in her design, I might be getting too much into the weeds here, but her design was um, the glazing started at the, at the, bed level and went up and we put this five foot high wall before we put the glazing up. So we got a second floor out of it um, um, and we paid her some consulting fee to help us do our planning and design. But um, I think <laughs> that might be the end of this slide. 
I get a lot of jujubes in there. They survived the cold winters. Oh, um, okay. I think I might need to switch to a different slideshow. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. If you want to do more of this. Yeah, that, this is great. Um, I've never had a jujube. That's something that I've been eyeing in all the catalogs, but I've never had one, so I'll have to get it one day. Um, I'm going to try to screen share a different screen. Okay. Um, okay, I have that pulled up now. If I go, I don't know what you're seeing now, but I want to get a screen share again. Yeah, I'm seeing your screen. It's still got the green. It looks like the original slideshow still. Okay. Um, I saw it, the other one pop up for a second, but I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, let me see if I can get that back then. You see that now? Nope. You might have to change, like, um, stop screen share and then restart and select the different tab. Okay. <laughs> um, pardon me if anyone. Oh, no, don't worry about it. It's, a, it's always a little confusing to figure out a new technology. Okay. And I don't share, even know. <laughs> select tab. And if I go to this. Thanks, Melissa. I agree. It is beautiful. Um, window. There we go. Okay, share. Hey, I'm figuring it out. We're learning. From current <laughs> ah, there we go. That looks better. Uh, um, okay. So we saw that picture. Oh, wait. Keep going. Um, different bio shelters. Um, this is the one in the lower right is a, at a Montessori school in Cleveland. Mm. And they wanted a science classroom. So they got some kits and they put in like a, this wood stove to heat the floor. And to me, a bio shelter, which I didn't really explain before, is a greenhouse managed as an indoor ecosystem. Okay. Um, so um, it's, and that's what we're going to be looking at here. Originally, I put glass on this thing had some bad advice from an architect. We can oh, see one of the windows broke. Windows started breaking. Oh, Pennsylvania no. Energy Office gave us a second grant the next year to um, build a, um, to replace all the glazing with polycarbonate. Okay, wow. <laughs> acrylic, acrylic. And we had, to re we had to move every rafter from the three-foot centers to four-foot centers. So. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's a lot of work. <laughs> $25,000 worth of work. Yes. Wowzers. So we had lots of shrubs, big rosemaries. Beautiful. Um, lemon, jujube. Or not lemon, but um, lemon verbena, pineapple sage. I couldn't um, grow citrus because it was too cloudy in the winter. So figs oh. did well. Okay. Um. Salad mix, magentas, lambs, quarters, purslane, fennel. Um, lots of different greens, uh, mallows, nasturtium leaves. So in this, you know, basic solar primer, you have a box. The sun comes into your box. You have a glazing that lets the sun through. You have thermal mass to store this heat, and you have ventilation so it doesn't overheat. 
Right. And you can insulate it. So our building is designed to have full sun in the winter and be partly shaded in the summer. Mm. And uh, lots of ventilation. And so we have the compost chambers on the second floor, lots of windows and vents upstairs. The storage space on the north side to buffer this space and the cold frames on the south side. Um, every summer we took the cold frame covers off to protect them because they were just like thin layer fiberglass reinforced panels. Um, so what we can do here, we have the compost chamber and then we have ductwork going down under the floor and coming up into rock storage in the greenhouse beds, oh. deep concrete beds. Okay. So we had two fans, two compost chambers, and also that connected to ductwork in the ceiling. So I, had, I turn a damper and I just pull all the, on a sunny day, I pull the heat from the ceiling, blow it through the fan and put it into the rocks under the bed. And when we were making compost, we turn the damper the other way and pull the air from the chicken coop or over the, do the compost. So, mm. so that was our active solar heating system. Yeah. Um, and then this is the, the floor plan layout. So these are all continuous beds. <clears throat> For a while we had drip irrigation in here, but it was a rubber hose and I made out of tires. And after a few years, I'm like, I don't really want to be watering through rubber tires, recycled tires. So yeah, fair enough. And then originally we had 90 steel barrels of water and eventually wow. we took out a lot of these steel barrels and replaced them with, with the planters. So I always, I knew how I did all the calculations for, we got a million BTUs of, you know, from the sun on average in January. And so we had storage capacity to, you know, for X amount of BTUs and, through the blocks and the soil and the beds. And, and then we would, um, <clears throat> knew that we would need backup heat. So we added a wood stove and then we put in this irrigation tank as a giant radiator, which my illustrator told us the truth that it was a hot tub. After <laughs> <laughs> um, a hot tub, we would drain the water and water our compost some years. So, Hey, that sounds nice. <laughs> basically when it was, I didn't need a fire unless it was below 25 degrees. And then I'd fire up the wood stove from like six in the evening till midnight. And that would, you know, what, or 10 o'clock at night, whatever. But in the, when it got down to like 10 or single digits, then we'd also heat up the hot tub stove as a submerged snorkel stove or wood stove in the hot tub. And, and then that would irradiate. And then we had, if it was really cold, we had fans blowing the heat both directions. Um, from the center just to distribute the heat through the building. So, yeah. Yep. And the key to it was windbreaks. Um, my daughter's in her mid thirties now, but, uh, I was still eating some of these raspberries this fall. So, wow. So there's, I think they're the August variety, but they produce in summer and in the fall. Um, and another illustration, you can see the ductwork going down from the ceiling. Um, mm. And uh, anyway. With the compost system that you have in there, 
was that an active compost where you turn it or is it a, a you set it up once and let it sort of do its thing for a month? Um, yeah, legally, you know, for organic composting, if it's open air, you have to turn it five times in 15 days. Okay. But if, it, if it's contained, you don't need to turn it. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the, but I would often rake it up and it really, it reduces in volume. Um, whoops, sorry. It reduces in volume a lot because it's giving off carbon dioxide and breaking down. And um, it gives off a lot of ammonia the first few days. So we had a filter of peat moss and putting soil ingredients like vermiculite and lime and all that would absorb the extra ammonia. And then we'd stir that back into the compost and chuck it every few days, to this little tray full of peat moss. Um, so, hmm. and potting soil mix, basically. Um, so we wanted to keep the ammonia from building up in the beds. Um, a student, I was kind of an advisor to slip several students over the years at Slippery Rock um, University's Masters of Sustainable Systems program. Hmm. And one of the students, Elizabeth Affleck, did her master's thesis on the levels of nitrates in the greens at Three Sisters Farm. <laughs> So for a whole year, we, I mean, it was my suggestion to her, for a whole year, we would take three ounce samples every week of our salad and freeze it. And then she used an analyzer. And the first year we started using the compost chambers in December. And um, she advised us, you know, by the, the next summer that we were getting high levels of nitrates in the shadier months because the the leaves will absorb the nitrates from the soil, but they can't metabolize it. Mm. And so it builds up in the leaves. So then the next year we quit using the compost until January when the day started getting longer. And then we had much better levels of nitrates. So, oh. so after that, we didn't use the compost chambers as much in the cold weather or when the cloudier weather, um, less good sunlight. So yeah, good to know. That's interesting. I mean, that's, same with anyone's greens anywhere. You want to watch how much fertilizer you, um, you know, her thesis gave a, some good information, you know, just you don't want to fertil- over fertilize. You want to harvest on sunny days and so forth. Um, yes. Chicken coop we already talked about. Um, we have a classroom inside, but this is the new alchemy composting greenhouse, a high tunnel with the compost chambers. Mm. Um, so these are our compost chambers made of concrete block and we had plywood covers and we used it as bottom heat to start our seedlings. The duct work to pull the, the air down through and then the filters at the end of the compost chamber there. Mm. Um, so this shows the layout of the beds inside with the, we had stone for, um, the beds are 32 inches high. Okay. So we had stones about halfway and then soil the rest of the way. Yeah. And uh, with the rocks, the ductwork. Again, the wild edibles just come up in the salad mix once you plant other things. So. <laughs> um, a lot of things self-seeded in there too, the chickweed, miner's lettuce, chervils. Um, another important thing with a greenhouse is you really want to have a lot of habitat outside the building 
to bring beneficial insects and vitamin. Yeah. Um, um, so we always kept, there's still, it's not being managed, but there's still a lot of perennial flowers there. There's tansies and wild geraniums and um, lemon balm, things that just you know, stayed there over the years. Um, trying to get to the beneficial insect part. So Ooh, the Bioshutter has these windbreaks. Um, we had the main tree windbreak on the east to west, and we planted a hedgerow of plums and high bush cranberries and blueberries and things. And then our spiral garden has lilacs and June berries and edible honeysuckle and rose hips for another windbreak, and then a kiwi arbor for another windbreak. Oh. And um, so oh, I is, love that. Yes, it was our spiral herb garden. It hasn't, it's not as managed as much, so there's not as much stuff. And now this dogo crab comes out to, you know, covers most of the spiral. Uh-huh. Um, I was at a showing last night of Stefan Sobiak, whatever. Yeah, yeah. We out of Canada. This film last night, but the people hosting it were serving dogo crab cider. Um, I'm like, I got three of those trees. <laughs> I can make cider out of it. <laughs> yeah, we make applesauce, but um, oh, okay, pink applesauce. Mix it with a centennial, another summer apple. Mm. So at the heights when this was made, we had you know counted forty-two different plants growing in here. Wow, um, a lot of herbs and things. It's nice centerpiece for the farm. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to get to the indoor ecosystem part here so in the bio shot we have a lot of pests aphids white flies thrips spider mites leaf hoppers flea beetles slugs and pill bugs or so bugs um, and so we had different ways of maintaining them um, you know when when people are watering i'd say i'm not sure how we're doing for time here but um, uh, we're good we have about a half hour I tell people, you're not just watering, you're looking at the health of the plant and, you know, is there any insects? And while you're watering, wash aphids off, smash them. Um, if they're real bad, we had other things we used. Um, but I want to get to some of the pictures here. So these are thrips on the left and on the upper right, aphids and then white flies. Um, and so... Thrips actually have a predator thrip that we would release. So we, um, the aphids, we had a, a number of different biocontrols. We had surfer flies living in the bio shutter and gold midge larvas. We'd buy white fly predators. So we always kept something flowering. Mm. Um, cabbage butterflies, we'd occasionally spray BT. And I was working on this, working in the bio shutter at Garfield Farm yesterday, and I could see the leftover wings of the cabbage butterflies and the spider webs. So the indoor spiders were always helpful. <laughs> I guess they don't like the taste of the wings or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but the, we had this, we had all these beneficial insects controlling our aphids, white flies and thrips in the warmer months, but in the winter we get outbreaks. And then one year I noticed we had this moldy aphids I sent him off to an entomologist and he wrote back six months later and said, um, you have Buberia bassiani, bassiana. Um, it's a 
entomophagic fungus. And it's commercially available, but we collected our own. We'd put it in little Petri dishes or little deli trays. I mean, um, let it um, spore, and then I'd mix it with distilled water and spray it on our seedlings and around. And so in the winter, we had, you know, virtually 90% control of aphids with the fungus. And then when the weather starts getting warmer and the fungus isn't active, then the, the um, braconid wasps and the surfer flies and other insects would start coming. So after like five years, we had virtually no pests, um, insect pests inside. Um, wow. So the Bivaria fungus and then the braconid wasps um, lay their eggs in the aphids. Yeah. Wow. And um, Incarcia formosa, so we purchased those to kill the white flies. Even when I kind of quit gardening and stopped heating my bioshutter a couple winters, the white flies survived. Um, huh. And then eventually they're, I think they're gone now, but so these little black things are little micro, almost microscopic larvae and the black ones have the wasp larvae inside it. Oh. Um, and surfer flies or People don't want to see that in their salad mix, but they eat a lot of aphids. So. <laughs> yeah, people don't want to see that. That's we true. had to be careful mixing our salad mix. And then the gold midge larvas, um, those, Whoa. if you see an aphid colony on goldenrods, you put a little plastic bag on it overnight, and the next day you'll find these little orange maggots climbing around the gold midge larvas. So we brought those inside, and they would be active from spring until, um, until late October. Wow. I saw them in December one year. Wow. And they also eat a lot of aphids. Cool. So we got a balance of insect um, control by seasonal crops, paying attention, and using the buberia in the winter. And, and massive amounts of diversity, too. I mean, you have so many different yeah. types of plants uh, integrated into those systems. That that's that's great. Yeah, had a lot of alyssum growing in the soil beds. And we always had some pansies, I and mean, we sold a lot of edible flowers. So, nasturtiums year-round, um, pansies, um, the alyssum for the habitat, and mm. calendulas grew year-round. Pineapple mm. sage blooms all winter. So, well, so oh, I hear my feedback there. No, that went away. Okay, good. Um, so thank you for sharing all that, Daryl. That was great. It was lovely to see, and you've worked very hard for a very long time, and thanks for sharing some of the wisdom with us. Um, so some of that stuff I'm going to take to my market garden this next year, give me some ideas. But I'm curious about the Food Forest Handbook. Um, how did that come about? Obviously, you've been working with various parts of the food forest for a, a while now, but when did that come about? And um, I've not read it yet, unfortunately, but I'd like to pick that book up. Um, what might you say about that book to entice people to buy it? Um, I guess I want to show a couple more pictures. Sounds good. To tell that story if this works out. Um, Matt Bebo, hi. Um, How are you, buddy? Thank you. Appreciate it. Matt says thank you to you, Daryl. Go to window. Is this the right thing here? Oh, yeah. We're figuring it out. <laughs> sure. You'll be an expert just, just about the time we get done. Ah, there we go. Is it something coming up there? Oh, this looks like um, I'm seeing like 
inside of this program. So I think this might be, might, maybe you shared the whole screen, but you want to share the tab or something like that. Okay, let's go back again here. Screen share, go to window. Uh, it's not not pulling up. Um, yeah, the, I'm trying to show pictures of this um, food forest that inspired our book. Oh, okay. My, um, are you seeing pictures oh, I, now? Yeah, I see something. Yep, I see is it. Slideshow from current slide. So I have a couple friends who um, graduated from Slippery Rock University and they came to Pitt with the Masters of Sustainability. Mm. And they came, they were from Pittsburgh and they decided they wanted to start food forests in the city. Um, you can see this picture, I presume. Yep. Yep. Looks great. So they got use of a, a lot, an abandoned lot in Hazelwood neighborhood of Pittsburgh. And they designed the food for us. They had a business for a number of years called um, Pittsburgh Permaculture. Mm. Um, one of them, Juliet Oshock, is now a sustainability landscape director at Phipps conservatory a big greenhouse conservatory in pittsburgh and michelle zolba the other my co-author she works with me on a lot of permaculture projects um but so they started this hazelwood food force and there was a three-story brick building casting a lot of shade so they used the shadiest shadiest area to be like the community center and a little storage building mm -hmm. um, they got a lot of funding and built this food forest. They dug up a lot of bricks and brought in a lot of compost and mulch and dug up more bricks and, you know, yep. and planted elderberries and sunflowers and herbs. And within five years, this place was just phenomenal. You know, this, these are all from the, this place. They had Asian pears and lots of apples. And, um, you know, they did these guilds with comfrey and thyme and gooseberries and currants under their fruit trees. And, um, Lorenzo's a teenager now, but he was eating peaches. And um, <laughs> this is a different food forest they did. So, so the Hazelwood food forest was um, eventually the city, in their wisdom, decided to give the land to somebody else. And so we dug up and moved a lot of the trees to other sites. But um, so after that experience, Michelle was like, "Oh, I want to turn my experience into something useful." So. She's like, do you want to co-write a book with me? And so I got a hold of my publisher at the um, New Society, my editor, and she's like, yes, we would love to have a food forest book. <laughs> um, Perfect. So we collaborated and wrote the food forest handbook, um, Michelle Zolba and I. And uh, it's funny, there's another book, which is really well done, called the Community Food Forest Handbook. Oh, um, so I've met the authors. Her name slips my mind. We were planning to do some courses or workshops together, and then the pandemic hit. Um, but she starts out her book with her first chapter is all about her visit to this wonderful, amazing Hazelwood food forest. <laughs> oh, that's and, uh, funny. I want to quickly show just a couple other guilds while we're on the subject. But this is an apple. This is an urban farm in Pittsburgh. 
where our Senator John Fetterman was mayor. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but it's an apple tree with asparagus, drusum, artichokes, and the fig. Nice. Uh, probably other herbs, but, um, you know, just lots of different manifestations. I was working with Mother Earth News Magazine, and we started a food forest at um, Seven Springs Resort where they used to have these Mother Earth News fairs. And um, But uh, this, the resort got sold, and they didn't want the fairs happening there anymore. Wow. Um, and, you know, just some other polycultures. I mean, a food forest is all about perennial polycultures. So... And this one, we planted a groundnut vine with the Jerusalem artichokes, kind of as a perennial three sisters, um, two sisters in that case, but a mm. um, little guild in the center with the ground. Groundnut is a tuber, and it's a legume. Um, so it produces an edible tuber on a vine in the underground, and the vine climbs up and has really pretty purple flowers. So, um, just some more of the food forest crops. This is a, they call it river locust, a morpho fruticosa. It was a common um, in this area. It grows along rivers, a legume. So we plant that in our food forest. And um, anyway, so there's a lot of crops you can get out of a food forest. And uh, Beautiful. they're exit screen sharing. <laughs> we have exited. So is your book uh, for a particular climate zone or sort of a climate region? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I what my contribution is, like the first chapter is a, the history of food forests. And I describe food forests around, you know, the tropical origins. I mean, my theory is that as humans traveled around the planet, we discovered that forest clearings and riverbanks were the most fruitful place for both. Like if a tree falls down and the sunlight gets in, then a lot of diversity comes up for a while. And all the animals come there to eat that diversity. So it's a great place to hunt and it's a great place to forage. And so then indigenous people around the world developed food forests, you know, just from their observation. Mm. You know, in Permaculture One, Bill Mollison talks a lot about the Guatemalan food forests. Um, you know, also known as a milpa in, in Mexico, um, just throughout the Americas, or, you know, throughout the world, really, anywhere there was a forest, people had, you know, whether it was Polynesians or Indonesia, there was food forests. So I kind of give the history of that. And then in the last section, I do profiles of food forests, you know, the Beacon Hill um, in Seattle, um, Washington, D.C., Corrine Brennan's place in Florida. I think you interviewed her on a previous podcast. Yeah. My friend Susie's Texas food forest. So so I try to profile food forests from a lot of different regions just to show what you can do. And um, so. Great. That's a book I'll have to get. I, I need to get both of your books. So forgive me, Daryl, for not having them ahead of time. But I will get them. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, actually, you know, the Bioshelter Market Garden, when I wrote it, I was trying to, I had, when I was 12 years old, I bought a book called Five Acres and Independence. Hmm. And I was reading through it and I'm like, it's all about a diverse farm on five acres. One of the things he says, if if you're raising chickens 
don't have more than a hundred chickens or then you're a chicken farmer, you know, and just try to keep things in the right scale. So I wanted to write a book called five acres and interdependence and just, you know, how the farms connected to everything. And, um, so, so I was trying to kind of do five acres and independence for the modern, for the 21st century, but, um, cool. So it, it covers everything from, defining permaculture and defining food systems and looking at people's home scale food systems. And then it goes through a lot of what we've just been talking about, you know, aquaculture, you know, water on the farm, energy systems on the farm, um, insect pests on the farm and oh. growing through the year and so forth. So, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you yet again. Let's and let's wind down, and I want to respect your time. So we got a couple more minutes here. Um, if anybody in the chat has any questions for Daryl, send them this way, and we can make sure they get answered. Um, but Daryl, I'm curious about your next steps. I know you're going to start to develop a food forest nursery. Is that correct? Is that already underway? What's the plans with that? Yeah, well, for the last 10 years... I've been a building contractor and, and permaculture consultant. And one of the, you know, as a, a farmer, I say has to be a plumber, an electrician, a carpenter, an ecologist, you know, a business manager. So the <laughs> yep. skills you inquire over the years, when you do a consultation for somebody, they're like, oh, can you build this? And um, so, or, you know, with my income level, sometimes I needed other work. So I'd say, oh, I can build this. You know? yeah. <laughs> Let's quit talking and start working. Um, I can start tomorrow. So I kind of got pulled into living in Pittsburgh. Um, and, um, but I go to my farm on weekends. I harvest. I have lots of grandkids up there. So lately my granddaughter has been going there and tending things and um, weeding the bio-shelter beds to, you know, things that came up through the, luckily she knew enough to leave the flowering marrow, mallows and the, um, you know, different things in there that I want to keep. Um, but, um, so I have these grandkids that need employment <laughs> and, uh, and for a while, my daughter and her family ran the farm, but then they moved on for various reasons. So, yeah. um, but, so I've been kind of refurbishing the farm and I just, you know, the point of the whole thing, really, when I started in permaculture, I'm like, we need models of sustainability. So when, you know, the, the three, three scenarios of permaculture, we either have a crash, which a lot of people expect, or the technologists think that, you know, technology is going to save the day and, and permaculture is like we need a slow descent from energy use and we need to have models in place and we need to um, create examples. And I don't know, you know, like I, in your previous interview with Jason Gerhardt, he talked about studying ecological design. And in my view, permaculture influenced ecological design, ecological design influenced permaculture. Permaculture has been influencing so many things all these years that you know, some of the lines are blurred, but you know, Pittsburgh has tree Pittsburgh, which grows native trees. And now they're starting to grow, you know, plant orchards. And um, there's um, Pennsylvania Resource Council, which teaches composting and rain barrels. There's so much sustainability stuff. There's so many urban farms that I've you know, had the pleasure of working with and helping to 
Somali Bantus build their high tunnel, even though nobody spoke English. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so there's so much good work happening. Um, and so I've been kind of in the city working with all these people, but now it's time to get back to my farm and reestablish my permaculture teaching center there. And so rather than doing all this market gardening, you know, when, when we're doing food forest design, I don't always know where to tell people to get all these things. You know, who's selling the Turkish rocket? Who, where do you get so much garlic chives? You know, where do you get all these herbs? And you can find them, but there's some a lot of things that you, it's hard to find jujubes. It's hard to find a lot of varieties of currants. And yeah. so, um, you know, we just want to establish much more on the landscape. When I was doing the market gardening year after year, it was really difficult to plant more perennials. You know, Bill Mollison says it's better to plant 10 trees and take care of them than 100 and lose most of them. Mm. But some years I'd buy 10 trees in the spring and I could barely get two or three in the ground. We were so busy you know, with the seedlings and the garden prep. And um, so you know, over the years, I've got a lot of perennials going, but not as much as I'd like. So, um, so now it's time to focus more on the perennials and less on annuals. And um, over the next three or four years, we'll be getting that together again. And also, and that's more on selling plants and seeds versus like uh, fruits and nuts, right? Yeah. 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 Selling right to cuttings and the, I mean, making cuttings and selling plants. Yeah. Again, you know, as I said earlier, I have a lot of collaborators. I have co-teachers I teach with and, um, you know, there's, different there's a permaculture woman in pittsburgh is focused mostly on native plants we used to have a native plant nursery at the farm and then my my partner in that business she started teaching at the university sustainability program and didn't have time anymore but um we're pretty well set up for that kind of thing so yeah that's beautiful man i look forward to that and maybe um once you get, I don't know if you plan to distribute, you know, throughout the country or whatnot in terms of people can purchase, but I, I'd love to be able to purchase particularly jujube because I'm, I've, like I said, I've not tried that yet. So I really want to try some jujube. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot up there right now. They're kind of drying on the vine. They're better when they're dry. So um, cool. shrub. great. Yeah. Well, good luck with that venture. And then the last bit of uh, sort of conversation, if, if you would say a word or two about Pina, um, for those of you who don't know, Daryl is on the board and a volunteer, and it was also sort of central, I, I believe, to the sort of like reemergence of Pina in around, around about 2012 or so. So what's your, what do you hope for Pina? What do you believe Pina is capable of doing? And maybe why would, why might somebody join as a member for Pina? Yeah, I was managing another farm that was going to be a, an eco community, but the housing crisis hit and they changed your plan. But while I was working there, I got a call one day from Peter Bain asking if I wanted to help be part of the you know creation of Pina, Permaculture Institute of North America, the resurrection of it. And at the time, I just thought, well, I better pay attention if someone's going to do this. Sure. And over the years, I spent as much time listening to Jude Hobbs and Peter and Penny Livingston and other people do things. And I, I'm the treasurer, so I do occasionally do things, but, um, 
but I just, you know, I've just been really amazed at for four or five years, we were organizing and then we were explaining to people what we were doing. <laughs> and, um, but you know, the, the things slowly grow. We got to the point where we could actually hire Peter Bain, you know, former editor of Permaculture Activist magazine. Um, and, uh, you know, Peter's just been phenomenal about, you know, networking and, you know, finding funding and so, but the point was we wanted, as um, somebody you interviewed previously, I don't know if it was Jude Hobbs, um, just saying we really needed a professional organization. Uh, you know, just um, there were people teaching permaculture, like in a five-day course, an eight-day course, and just we were just afraid that the standards were, you know, getting diluted, and um, we didn't want to tell people what they couldn't do, but we wanted to set a standard for people to look at to say, this is, I mean, I took a 120 hour permaculture course and even a you know, 80 hour course that we teach, it's hard to fit everything in that you want to teach in the class. So, yeah. um, you know, we, we just wanted to go with some like internationally recognized standards. And then we decided to offer diplomas and I, I think there's over 60 people with diplomas through Pina now. And um, so it's just, you know, the point is to have a professional support organization, which we didn't have before. And so I feel supported professionally. And I think if you're a permaculture professional, Pina has a lot to offer, um, especially in the last year or two, we've really gotten some good funding and good initiatives and dynamic board members. And so there's a lot, um, a lot happening and just looking at the website and these podcasts and the work you're doing, it's just um, really gratifying to be part of. Um, so <laughs> yeah, not sure what more to say, but um, I think, I think stay that's, tuned, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah, stay tuned. And, and, and for me as well, being able to come on board due to all that groundwork that you and others have laid Peter and getting funding and whatnot, you know, I'm really hopeful for the future of Pina. You know, we have a summit coming up and design contest just passed and we get to do all these really interesting and cool things because it's an institution and it's a professional organization. And, you know, we get to fill a niche that you can't do just as an individual. Um, and we also get to support all our members and our diplomates. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the next few years to see what develops and very grateful for your work and in, in holding Pina and, and advancing Pina. So, and, yeah, and I'm also grateful. I'm also grateful, Daryl, for your time today. And I want to just say thank you. Sure. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, you know, the other thing about Pine is the whole networking, the potential for more and more networking with other members, you know, just really a lot of connections can be made and are being made. And yeah, um, so great. Stuff. Yeah, we, we got a great question here. Uh, how does this standard idea fit with Bill Mollison's idea of not being centralized? And you kind of spoke to that, like, we don't want to police things, but we also want to have some standards. Well, what Pina, our long range goal is to have regional hubs that are fairly well organized chapters that, you know, nominate board members. And, you know, due to the nature of permaculture work and time and energy, that hasn't manifested as much as we'd like but it's still it's still really our, our long-range goal 
is to see you know, every bioregion have its own permaculture organization and draw our board members from those organizations. So, yeah, um, we're, again, we're not trying to control anything. We're trying to facilitate work um, on the local level. So, yeah, exactly. And, and to hold a standard, not to sort of tell people that they can't be teaching permaculture yeah. or, or doing their offerings. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard anyone in Pina criticize work of people who aren't part of Pina. You know, we, we embrace it all, but um, we definitely want to have strong standards. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, thank you for that question, deer hunting. I think that was, that's a really good question and something that, you know, I think we all kind of think about and, and maybe not struggle with, but we have to at least consider, um, you know, I've heard from a few folks, including yourself, that the early PDCs were 120 hours. I mean, they're much more of a meaty affair and I, and, and we've definitely shrunken it down now to 72. Um, do you kind of think that we need to get back to a more closer to that 120 hour PDC? Or do you think it's fine at the 72 hours with the addition of, you know, follow that up with dirt time and learning how to like incorporate permaculture design for the next couple of years? Yeah. When you were interviewing Jason Gerhardt, you talked about the permaculture for millionaires. Yeah. One of that's a, a lecture from a transcript of Bill, one of Bill Mollison's um, permaculture courses that Dan Hemingway transcribed, and now it's available something you know, out there on the web probably. But um, so you can read what a 120-hour lecture from Bill Mollison was somewhere. But I, it's just really difficult for people to do the two-week course or even you know the 10, 12 sessions year-round. You know, yeah. people teach, so it's hard to. Um, and you know, and if if uh, fifteen people take a permaculture course, two of them might really pursue it, and the rest integrated into their into their other work. And so, the people that want to integrate it into their other work—that's what organizations like Pina are for—to help mentor you to, you know, or local organizations, local permaculture guilds. You know, there's many ways to learn it now. So. It just doesn't seem practical to have a 120-hour course anymore. Yeah, no kidding. It really doesn't. But I wonder if we can have some of it be digital and you can take that information of the 120 hours into yeah. the digital realm, but that keep the course as it is so that people can actually access it and not feel like, oh, my gosh, there's no way I can take that much time off, you know. But. Yeah. But, you know, ideas for the future, I suppose. Um, it's just, it's interesting to me because I, my mind was blown at my P, my PDC, um, but I had the standard 72-hour one. I'm just curious. It's like, man, what else more could be in the the longer one? I, I would just be curious. Well, uh, there was, a, I mean, I wrote down everything Dan Hemingway said. I still have it in a notebook somewhere, but I okay. can't, read, can't read it because I'm allergic to dust. But, yeah, he was, you know, you break down energy systems and, you know, Sterling engines and, you know, it, heat pumps. And so got into a lot more detail about every, you know, a permaculture course. I mean, Rosemary Morrow's book with the 72 hour course, you know, teaching permaculture um, is, um, you know, the standard modules. You can spend, you know, a morning talking about soil testing and soils, and then you're on to the next thing. There's no way you can, yeah. go into the depths that you would need to professionally. So it's, 
some people call it a survey course, but it's really an introduction to a broad, broad spectrum of tools and techniques and ideas that you need to teach permaculture. We always do an 80 hour course because we integrate the design and the, some hands on into the course. Um, for anybody that wants to really look at it, I think the Pina website probably still has a breakdown of the course outline. Yes. The, yeah, exactly. The core curriculum that you can find that on the footer. If you go to the footer of the Pina website, yeah. it, it's pretty accessible. Um, but Daryl, I've kept you over time and I'm feeling bad. So let me let you go and uh, just we'll, we'll do it again. We'll do this again sometime and we can go a little bit deeper into bio shelters or any other thing that you have experience about. And I look forward to that. Sure. Keep up the good work. Yeah. Thank you. You too. And we'll see you soon. Sure. Thanks. Thanks everybody.